Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Die, die, I have some new information. What? This show is a wrathful member of the Agora Podcast Network. Don't you mean that it, it's a proud member? No, pride was last month. I'm working my way through the sins. You're so weird. Speaking of weird, this month Agora is hosting a bevy of weird and spooky stories in honor of Halloween. My segment just went live, and in it I talk about Martin Luther's scatological relationship with witches. If you've been impatient for me to get to the Reformation already, maybe that will tide you over for the next two years. Two years? Seriously? Okay, well I also did a crossover with Steve of the History of the Papacy podcast about Luther. It should be going live by the time this episode posts, so be sure to check the blog and the Facebook page to find out more. This month we have but one patron to thank, but his solitude makes his honor that much greater. Patron Robbie shall be known hereafter as Viscount Robbie, who meets or exceeds expectations. As I mentioned in the last episode, we're in the process of buying a house. We have an accepted offer, and the place looks really great. But guys, I don't know if you realize, houses are really expensive. We're looking at closing costs now, and, well, anything you can give will be really a big help. Thank you. Me, me, me. History is neither watchmaking nor cabinet construction. It is an endeavor toward better understanding. There is no true understanding without a range of comparison. The ABC of our profession is to avoid these large abstract terms in order to try to discover behind them only the concrete realities, which are human beings. The historian is, by definition, absolutely incapable of observing the facts which he or she examines. History is, in its essentials, the science of change. It knows and it teaches that it is impossible to find two events that are ever exactly alike, because the conditions from which they spring are never identical. If your neighbor to the left says 2 times 2 equals 4, and the neighbor to the right says 2 times 2 equals 5, do not then conclude that the answer is 4 and a half. For, in the last analysis, it is human consciousness which is the subject matter of history. All the preceding quotes were from The Historian's Craft by Mark Bloch, as read by Thomas Daly of the American Biography Podcast. Royfield Brown of the Ten Americans Presidents podcast, Zach Twomley of When Diplomacy Fails, Sharon Eastaw of the History of the Crusades podcast, Steve Guerra of the Beyond the Big Screen podcast, myself, 
and Zach Twomley again of When Diplomacy Fails. Thank you all of you for your contributions. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Greetings. My name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation. Episode 36, Mach Bluck. Back in August, when I was planning out the month of October, I conceived a grand ambition to do two episodes this month. Then my move got delayed, and yeah, we're still working on that, and after a lot of stressing myself out all through September, I've decided to just do the episode on Mark Bluch. Why? Well, mostly, and to quote late 90s Armenian new metal band System of a Down, because I wanted to. I did want to do both, but it seems like every time I look at Liutprand, I find some other historian with yet another take on the guy, and frankly, I'm sick of him and having to rewrite everything every time I look at him, and I just don't like him in general. But Bloch is a fascinating figure, little known outside of historical circles, and beyond being one of the main secondary sources for this part of Wittenberg to Westphalia, he lived an exciting life that I think will fill in a little corner of the story of the 20th century that is left out of most English-language books. And I think it makes for a great episode, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. Now then. Bloch, as I have mentioned on the show before, is one of the most important figures of 20th century history, particularly in medievalism, but also just in the way historians conceived of their mission and the tools at their disposal. He did none of this on his own, but his unique life story not only shaped his contributions, they have helped make his memory a cherished one amongst historians. My main source for today's episode is the biography by Carol Fink, Mark Bloch, A Life in History. It's pretty widely available, and I recommend it. Marc Bloch was born in Lyon in southern France, but nothing about that statement actually conveys anything useful about his family or childhood. His parents were exiles from the Alsace region, which France lost to Germany in the Franco-Prussian War. The stay in Lyon was very brief, as Marc Bloch's father, Gustave Bloch, shortly thereafter attained a professorship at a very prestigious school in Paris, which is now part of the Sorbonne. Marc did not return to Lyon until much later in his life, though in spectacular fashion, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Gustave Bloch himself had a life worthy of a biography, and I'm going to have to give him short shrift. The family was Jewish, and had traditionally been shopkeepers in a tiny Alsatian village. Gustave's father had moved to Strasbourg, the capital of Alsace, and had founded a Jewish school. But this was just at the time of the founding of France's Second Republic, and as the Restoration period ended, restrictions on Jews in society were removed. Gustave showed himself to be a brilliant student, and quite quickly attained a place in the secular school system of France, eventually earning a place at a prestigious university in Paris. It was on a six-month break from classes in Paris that Gustave happened to be in Strasbourg during the 1870 siege of the city by the Germans, when so much of the city's history was destroyed. Gustave joined the civilian militia during the fighting and helped rescue people, deliver food, and fight fires caused by the German shelling. After the city fell, the war was lost, and Alsace was transferred to German rule, the Bloch family were amongst the 15% of the Alsatian population that chose to flee the region. For a family of Francophone Jews, there was no opportunity in the German Empire, and certainly not in an occupied border territory. Gustave conceived an early interest in archaeology, but had much more of an interdisciplinary instinct than was usual for the time. He ultimately landed in the history faculty of Lyon, where he secured his doctorate before moving on to Paris, where he would spend the majority of his career. Gustave was amongst the leading lights of his generation, and helped establish the French positivist school of history, which I'll discuss a little bit more later. Gustave was notable for pushing historians to allow the findings of archaeology to change the narrative, which previously was determined only by documentary evidence. 
This background is key to understanding Marc Bloch's outlook on life. His family had been given opportunities by the French Republic that they would have had nowhere else in Europe, and so they were inherently and deeply loyal to this leftist vision of France. They were not radicals. We would call them center-left, but we shouldn't see them as mincing, wishy-washy liberals. Theirs was a passionate devotion to their country, founded on a vision of that country as one of liberté, égalité, fraternité, and they were very willing to put their lives on the line for this loyalty. Given this worldview, the Dreyfus Affair came as a challenge and an affront to the family's very existence in French society. Marc was seven when the highly conservative French army, needing a scapegoat for their failure in the War of 1870, chose to blame Captain Dreyfus, a Jewish officer in the army staff. At first, everyone, including the Bloch family, accepted the official story as Dreyfus was rapidly accused of treason and espionage, convicted, and sent to a penal colony in South America. But even as his ship sailed, Dreyfus's wife and family convinced some reporters to take another look at the evidence. When they did, the edifice of the Dreyfus conviction crumbled under scrutiny. It became clear that the army had fabricated most of the evidence, and that they only blamed Dreyfus because of his Jewish roots. He was expendable, not one of us. As the reality dawned, the leftist parts of French society were gradually mobilized into greater and greater levels of protest. The Blochs, who had viewed the army as the shield of liberty, gradually came around to the betrayal that had occurred. When the students at the Sorbonne took to the streets, they did so alone at first, but they were eventually joined by the faculty, Gustave chief amongst them. Under this pressure, Dreyfus was retried, and ultimately Dreyfus was pardoned and returned to France. For his supporters, who now called themselves the Dreyfusards, this was victory and vindication. But the conservative army officers remained, for the most part, at their desks. Most would still be in place when the guns began to rumble to life in August 1914, and the splits in French society would persist longer. Like his father, Marc was a bright student, and achieved top honors in his education. Not much is known about his early years, but it should be noted that, except for a few years of his early childhood, he grew up in Paris. The family was at this point largely secular by all accounts, and Marc excelled in the high-quality intellectual environment of the capital. By 1914, he was well on his way to finishing his doctoral thesis, and had served two years as an apprentice, teaching at colleges in the south of France. When war broke out, Marc rushed to join the ranks, starting as a sergeant in the reserves. He fought at the Marne and at the Somme, in the front lines. At the Marne, he was wounded slightly in the arm by shrapnel. In the same day, his canteen was also shredded by shrapnel, and he counted four bullet holes in his coat. At the Somme, he was struck by a spent bullet in the face, receiving a black eye. The letters from Bloch are a fascinating counterpoint to the usual views of World War I, and this is the first real picture we have of Bloch as a person. He complained bitterly about Foch and the leadership of the army and their apparent lack of concern about the horrible conditions in which the men lived. He despised the lack of intellectual curiosity in the officers, admired the bravery of his men and his comrades, and observed with curiosity the ramifications of the wartime environment on the spread of rumors and ideas. Some of these wartime observations would inform his later work. But in contrast to many, Bloch seems exhilarated by the combat itself. He was intensively devoted to the cause, and extremely concerned for his men's welfare. Several of his comrades were killed around him, and he was particularly enraged by the preventable death of a man who spoke only the Celtic language Breton, who could not communicate his complaint to the army doctors until it was too late. The chauvinist attitude of the army towards those who did not conform to expectations remained even in wartime, though the worst of the commanders were admittedly purged by the disasters of 1914. Marc Bloch would demobilize in 1918 with more decorations than I really care to list, and he finally began his career in earnest. 
Men of his generation were granted a quick route to their PhDs in light of their wartime service, and Mark Bloch quickly attained his degree with honors, and he quickly volunteered for a position in the history department in his ancestral city of Strasbourg. As his father led that department, it is probably not a surprise that his offer was taken, but given the mission of this university, we should not take anything about this for granted. The university in Strasbourg was set up by the French authorities to show the world how enlightened French rule would contrast to the clumsy militarism of the German state. Gustave Bloch lent the venture an air of legitimacy, but the young and idealistic academics who made the move to Strasbourg were perceived to be making a real sacrifice for their country. Such a provincial posting would separate them from the opportunities for promotion in the capital. Despite, or perhaps because of this, there was a great sense of excitement at the venture, and Marc Bloch's leadership qualities really shone. He began to host a number of social events and lectures at the university that built a major esprit de corps within the staff. The tight-knit teaching community would engage in regular interdisciplinary meetings where they shared work and ideas. This position would have a profound effect on Bloch's work, particularly since it was here that he met Lucien Fevre. Fevre was only a few years older than Bloch, young enough that they shared a camaraderie, but far enough apart that the younger man looked up to the older. The two were in many ways rather different. Bloch was notoriously somewhat cold and analytic in style and personality, something that contrasted sharply with the unconventional and nomadic nature of his work in subject and methodology. By contrast, Fevre was described as colorful in his lectures, and his writing had a decidedly combative tone and style. And yet it was Fevre who was more conventional in his subject matter, stayed more within the confines of his specialty, and who most maintained his ties to the older generation of historians. Nonetheless, they shared in more than they differed, and their differences were mostly complementary. Both were highly decorated veterans who started the war as sergeants and left as captains. Politically, they were both passionately center-left, loyal to the Republic, and former Dreyfusards. Professionally, both sought, to paraphrase Bloch's biographer Carol Frink, to refresh the practice of history, break down artificial walls, banish pedantry, and establish as history's main goal the attainment of understanding. They sought to do this by the application of rigorous evidentiary standards, tireless research, interdisciplinary methodologies, and the use of comparative history to build a picture of the societies and cultures under examination. The closeness of the university faculty had some downsides that only appear in retrospect. The goal of this university was to help reintegrate Alsace and Lorraine back into France after a 50-year occupation. Many of the faculty, like Bloch, were descendants of refugee Alsatians, but most had assimilated in the interim. Little effort was made to understand the unique circumstances of the local community, nor even to really interact with them at all. Despite the high levels of academic aspiration by the faculty, the students were only interested in furthering their careers, either in a profession or by transferring to Paris. This semi-colonial atmosphere would ultimately undermine the university, and eventually all of the members of this tight-knit faculty would themselves find positions in Paris and move away from Strasbourg. Nonetheless, this outsider position helped drive their academic pursuits, and what a productive time it was. In 20 short years, Bloch and Fevre would produce a library of books, white papers, and monographs, which are still relevant today, not to mention founding the Annals, but then I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. Bloch's thesis was itself a major work, entitled Roy et Serfs, which is Kings and Serfs. The thesis used a bewildering variety of evidence to build a picture of the way the peasants used land and the personal holdings of the King of France around Paris. Bloch then showed how this land use affected, and was affected by, society, technology, the economy, and politics. Sadly, it was never really finished due to the war, at least not to Bloch's exacting specifications. Still, it garnered widespread praise, and was published in 1920. 
Bloch's first major work after his thesis was in 1924, and was entitled Leroy Tumagiers, translated as The Royal Touch, Monarchy and Miracles in France and England. This work studied the royal touch, a practice wherein the touch of a king was used in an attempt to heal a person suffering from scrofflaw, which is an infection of the lymph node in the neck. The perceived ability of the kings to cure the illness, which itself rarely results in death, and which generally goes into remission on its own, helped build the perceived importance of royalty in Western Europe. Bloch was amongst the first to write seriously about the practice, which he used as a way to build a picture of the culture of the Middle Ages, and more generally how ideas spread and are fostered by those who benefit from them. This work was itself based on his wartime experiences. Amongst historians, his most famous work was not strictly his alone. In 1929, he and Lucien Febvre founded Annales de Histoire in Economique et Sociale, which, despite five name changes and a bewildering amount of publishers, is still in publication today as Annales Histoire Science Sociales. Largely due to these reasons, most people just call it Annales. The journal served two purposes. First, to present an alternative to the mainstream history journals, which the co-founders felt were hopelessly stuck in the past. Second, the journal would give the co-founders a mouthpiece, which would allow them to build their own prestige and, hopefully, secure more prestigious appointments elsewhere. This first decade of the journal became legendary, possibly out of all proportion to its real achievements, but the listing of articles sounds strikingly modern in contrast to the other journals of the time. Also striking is the breadth of the topics covered. Bloch and Febvre were convinced that the historian must produce work that is useful to society, not just something that would sit on a shelf. And so the Annals hosted articles analyzing, for example, the agricultural weaknesses of the USSR. That would be like a modern history journal publishing an article analyzing the post-war government of Iraq. It just wouldn't happen, it's too recent. Bloch and Febvre contributed many, many articles to their own journal, often filling in when they were unable to find other contributors. During these years, Bloch wrote many articles about the development of currency during the Middle Ages, and how the evidence of that time period undermined many then-popular theories of the nature of currency. Bloch also wrote extensively about the impact of technology on medieval society, with much discussion of the water wheel. One of the intriguing and tragic aspects of the Annals was the impact of nationalism, for good and bad. Bloch was decidedly an ardent French nationalist, but his nationalism was built out of a knowledge of what the enlightened French state had done for his family. He felt that France was clearly the most superior and rational actor in Europe, but by that same token, this was a bias that had been earned. France had to live up to the rational, humanist, and enlightenment ideals that Bloch held dear, or else it vacated its very essence, and ceased being France. Amongst those ideals was a recognition of the right for other nations to exist, and an optimistic, idealistic appeal to internationalism, and an intellectual community, that crossed international boundaries. This internationalism was a key founding goal of the Annals, but by the time of the journal's foundation, the tide had already turned against this kind of hope. The issue was with the Germans, and this is going to require a bit of backtracking. Leopold von Ranke is considered by many to be the first modern historian, due to his insistence on evidentiary standards in the writing of history. Ranke was a German, and so a German school of historians grew up around him. This is often called the historicizing school, or the German school. At first, French historians eagerly adopted the methodologies of the German school, but by the time of Gustave Bloch, Marx's father, French historians began to push the goals and methodologies of history much further. The German school of Ranke had insisted that only high politics were the worthy subject of historical study, focused on war, the actions of great men, and the concerns of states. The new French school, composed of leftists, Dreyfusards, and socialists, rejected this view and called for a new history that sought to understand more completely the concerns of the common man and his world. This school was also called the French positivists. 
Though initially a friendly rivalry, the events of 1870 did poison the relationship between these two schools somewhat. Both schools adopted techniques and ideas from each other, but there remained a divide, and the German school retained a more state, great man-oriented approach through the entire rest of our story, while the French increasingly pushed the bounds of what could be achieved in telling the stories of those outside the halls of power. Many in the historical community recognized that the free exchange of intellectual ideas across borders would be of benefit to all humanity, and so there were a number of international academic conferences throughout the 20s. But almost immediately, the ill feeling engendered by the recent past of World War I torpedoed efforts to be truly international. Macroom infighting ultimately meant that the Germans were never invited to these conferences, and soon it was only former allied countries from Western Europe, along with a smattering of Scandinavians and Americans, who attended these conferences. Disgusted by the apparent pettiness, Fevre and Bloch made the inclusion of international viewpoints a key goal of the Annals, and indeed they did secure articles from a wide array of international scholars. But unfortunately, by the time of the journal's foundation, relation with the Germans had only gotten worse. Only one German ever contributed to the journal during its first decade, and that was very early on. It's hard for me to tell how much of this was due to mutual ill-feeling engendered by nationalism and World War I, and how much was simply down to the fact that a historian from the German school was not likely to produce an article for a journal that was dedicated to telling historical stories based on non-traditional sources aimed at illuminating the lives of non-political actors. As the 30s wound towards their close, things became very difficult in Strasbourg. As the Nazis came to power, just across the river, Bloch sought to leave for the security of Paris, but the rising tide of conservatism, anti-Semitism, and fascist sympathy in France itself threatened his ability to do so. After several years of desperate effort, Bloch finally managed to secure a position with the aid of Fevre. For his part, Fevre had a new position in Paris, was still co-director of the Annals, and was now the editor of the Encyclopedia of France. The stress from these things, combined with his attempts to help Bloch attain his own position in Paris, caused the Annals to nearly fold, and the two men to dissolve their friendship. Ultimately, however, they were able to patch things up, and once Bloch was ensconced at the Sorbonne in Paris, the Annals resumed, although without the original publisher. This was in 1939. In the same year, Bloch managed to publish what is undoubtedly his opus, the two-volume Society of the Middle Ages. I've already discussed the importance of this work to the study of history, to this show, and to me personally, but suffice it to say that the work traces the rise of a new society in Europe. Starting with the chaos of invasion, the work traces the ties of personal dependence that grew between people, and how these ties came to build up a new society. Amongst Bloch's greatest achievements was something that wasn't in the work. Many historians, particularly in the 1930s, got very bogged down in arguing about the origins of things, and medievalists in particular loved to quibble about whether things were Roman or German in origin. Bloch had, in general, no sympathy for the grand quest for origins, and in terms of the debate about the German or Roman origins of feudalism, he had very little patience at all. He considered the obsession at best futile, and at worst a source of error given the lack of sources. Modern archaeology has handily borne out Bloch's caution, showing that the trade and political ties between Germany and the Empire, which stretched back centuries, made it nearly impossible to differentiate between Roman and Germanic origins for anything. By the time the second volume of this work was published, Bloch was back in uniform and marching towards his Second World War. Now a reservist captain assigned to a quartermaster unit, Bloch didn't see any direct fighting, but that is not to say that his experience of the war was boring. Bloch's writings from this time show a growing disquiet at the lack of direction and urgency in the French army. War plans were changed many times in the early months of the war, and chaos reigned. 
Higher-ranked officers showed no concern as to the combat readiness of their troops, and the British and French commands seemed to have little concern about coordinating their efforts. When the retreats began, Bloch was appalled at the continued lack of concern, indecisiveness, and indecision in the commanders. Retreats were too short, officers seemed not to care what was happening, and when they realized the gravity of the situation, refused to make tough but necessary decisions. Unlike in 1914, there was no mass removal of ineffective field officers, and instead the high command itself became a revolving door. Bloch was put in charge of gasoline supplies, and prided himself that none of his stores fell into enemy hands. Everything was either used or destroyed. By May, Bloch had lit many fires across the northern coast, and there was no gasoline left, and no army command to report to. He and his men held together and made it to Dunkirk, where they were evacuated. Bloch spent several days in England, being feted by the people of England as tragic and heroic allies, even as the officers of the British army treated them as an embarrassment and as a problem to be got rid of. He and his men were shipped to Normandy as quickly as possible, where they spent several days being reorganized and re-equipped before Rommel's lightning strike through northern France ended all resistance there. The Germans caught up to Bloch in Rennes, the capital of Brittany. Bloch had sworn never to be captured alive, and despite Rommel himself having a fairly admirable record on many of these counts, Bloch was a man of Jewish descent and an army officer in the French army, and Bloch's instincts on this count were probably correct in the longer term. At the same time, all escape was hopeless and resistance was impossible, so Bloch adopted what he would later call the Professor's Gambit. As the Germans entered the city, he went back to his room, took off his uniform, and put on his most formal civilian suit. Then he found a colleague at the local college who helped him to secure a room at the local hotel. As a highly articulate, middle-aged, well-dressed man with salt-and-pepper hair, Bloch looked much more like a professor than a fugitive army officer. And so it was that, after a few days kicking his heels in Rennes, Bloch simply boarded a train to his family's country home in southern France, right under the noses of the Nazi occupiers. The collapse of France ended Bloch's streak of regular academic publications. As a man of Jewish heritage, it became clear very quickly that any kind of return to Nazi-occupied Paris was out of the question. His extensive personal library and papers were simply abandoned, and he and his family joined thousands of refugees in the French rump state of southern France, governed from the vacation resort town of Vichy by former World War I hero Marshal Patin. With the political left and center discredited by the disaster, previously fringe elements of the hard right found themselves welcomed into the new regime. Patin's government very quickly began passing anti-Semitic legislation, largely on their own initiative. At first, this only consisted of banning Jews from some professions, notably from teaching positions. But even this was viewed with horror and shock by most French citizens, and the regulations only got worse over time. Podcast footnote. Patin's story is classic Greek tragedy. In Act 1, he is a heroic First World War general. In the second act, he was led by twisting paths to become a monster. In the final act, he watched everything fall apart and spent the rest of his life in prison, dying as an incontinent and confused old man suffering from dementia in a military prison. End podcast footnote. Bloch's status as an internationally renowned scholar shielded him somewhat from these events. So did his wartime experience. He was one of only ten Jews exempted from the teaching ban in France, which allowed him to take up a position first at the Strasbourg University in exile, and later at the University of Marseille. Bloch also immediately began seeking visas to allow his family to migrate to the United States, but the size of his clan presented problems. 
At the start of the occupation, he had under his care, and this is by my count, which may be wrong, his elderly mother, his wife, his adult daughter and her family, his two sons, several nephews, and, depending on how bad things were, his sister-in-law and her elderly relatives. Podcast footnote. I have not, and I will not, really have time to delve into Bloch's family life, which is a huge shame. There are some colorful characters. Bloch's mother, for example, was by all accounts a quite formidable figure, and his close emotional and domestic partnership with his wife was, as with so many men of this time, one of the real keys to his success. He was reportedly a stern but affectionate and deeply interested father, and his sons and nephews have left fond memories of him as a parent. I include his nephews here because Bloch had an older brother, Louis, whom he idolized in his youth. Louis was a doctor and attained as much prestige in his field as one would expect of a Bloch. They're all ridiculously brilliant. Unfortunately, he died of tuberculosis shortly after the First World War, leaving a widow and several children. Bloch took a deep personal interest in their welfare and ultimately brought the whole lot into his household. Though a fairly common thing in France, especially for those who are well enough off to afford it, Bloch clearly gained a great amount of satisfaction from being a family man to a large clan, and took a great interest in the careers and education of all the children under his care. End podcast footnote. Bloch was able to secure a teaching position in the United States at the New School through the efforts of the Rockefeller Foundation, but the salary provided was only enough to allow himself and four others to pass through U.S. Customs due to U.S. Customs regulations being tied to economic ability to support people as well as a quota system, and it's all very Byzantine. Many avenues were pursued to find additional funding and to travel to the U.S. by alternative routes, but all these began to seem more and more illusory as time went on. Bloch's daughter had been asthmatic for many years, and in 1940, his mother suffered a series of strokes. Adding to the difficulty, Bloch's wife began to suffer from a mysterious illness a few months later. These concerns added to Bloch's refusal to break up his family, though his mother would ultimately die before the end of the year. It should be said that there were avenues of escape that Bloch allowed to close for reasons that are less clear. Bloch simply refused to begin traveling until he had all his visas lined up in a row. This may seem prudent from a modern standpoint, but in all likelihood it prevented a successful flight. Had he allowed himself and his clan to pursue half-measures, for example by traveling to the French colony of Martinique in the Caribbean before securing a U.S. visa, he would likely have put himself far enough beyond the reach of the Vichy authorities that it would have been safe to wait for the visa process to follow its course. Some see in this a romantic reluctance to desert France in her hour of need. This may have been a contributing factor, but I would add that Bloch was a comfortable, middle-class professor not prone to making moves without a clear plan. And I would also suggest that we keep in mind the stress and bewilderment felt by many at the worsening situation, a disbelief that such things could really be happening in France, and possibly guilt at the idea that he might get away while so many others would not. Bloch was far from the only Jew in Europe who failed to energetically pursue escape until it was too late. By the end of 1940, it was clear that escape to the U.S. was no longer possible. In Montpellier, Bloch struggled to assume some kind of a normal life, but factors both political and professional prevented this. As it happened, the dean of his new college was an ardent conservative whose work Bloch had once excoriated in the press, and so Bloch was only given two minor introductory courses to teach. This might not have been a big deal for Bloch if Montpellier were not, at the time, a research dead end. Montpellier's library was woefully undersupplied, and Bloch's expansive personal library was still in Paris, along with most of his notes. Many efforts were made using his political contacts to secure the release of the library, but ultimately, again partly due to Bloch's pride, the SS confiscated the lot, turned his apartment into an officer's barracks, and placed a searchlight on his balcony. 
It is in this context that Bach produced the two works for which he is most famous. Le Trange de Fight, or The Strange Defeat, was written immediately after his return from the front, and chronicled the collapse of the French army. Written in what Carol Fink describes as a white-hot rage, Bloch astutely and ruthlessly analyzed the culpability of all those who contributed to the disaster. He poignantly did not spare himself or his academic colleagues, who he felt had vacated their responsibilities to keep the public informed in the name of a comfortable job and prestigious promotions. Once the book was completed, Bloch packed it away. It would never be safe to publish a book of that type in the current environment, and so he hoped to publish it after the war had ended. He also began a book originally called Apologie pour l'histoire au maître de historienne, but which is most widely available in English under the title of The Historian's Craft. This is a poignant, practical, and accessible work which summarizes the philosophical and pedagogical efforts he had made throughout his life in the realm of history. He seems to have started it in Montpellier, where he was teaching introductory-level courses. Unlike many professors of his level, he actually seems to have often relished teaching such courses, and he was deeply committed to the pedagogical side of his historical profession. But other projects had always intervened between Bloch and writing some sort of methodological guide. Now, isolated as he was, away from his library, the course turned his mind away from the other projects that now he could not pursue, and towards the idea of putting these more basic precepts of his craft into a comprehensive document. He worked on it throughout the following several years, and it is a deeply charming book. It has a proud place on my own shelf, or it would if I had shelves right now and my books weren't all in boxes. It presents a serious argument as to the purpose and methodology of the practice of the historian in a witty, clear, and accessible way. The book begins with a question, asked to him once by his son, who was at the time still very small. Father, what is the use of history? Much of the lingering guilt from Le Trange de Fate remains in his answer, and the introduction is an apology to his son and to the world for not doing enough to make history useful, for not doing enough to help the public understand history and, by being so educated, avoid the disaster which had befallen France. That said, the book does not wallow in self-pity. The subsequent four and a half chapters after the introduction aim at explaining the methodology of history, and how it should all come together in a way that is presumably useful to society. Bloch continued to work on this book all throughout 1942 and 1943. The most tragic element of Bloch's work from this time, however, involved the Annals. Fevre was insistent that the journal continue, to spite the Germans. But Fevre had remained in Paris, in the occupied zone. If the annals were to continue under Nazi occupation, Bloch, as a Jewish person, had to be removed from the official staff. Fevre asked, and then demanded, that Bloch sell out his share of the journal, transfer control to Fevre, and participate only unofficially. You can see Fevre's point, but Bloch was extremely upset by the idea, and you can see his point too. The fight became bitter, and Fevre was extremely unkind to Bloch, who he so much as accused of cowardice because he fled to the south. Ultimately, Bloch acquiesced. A number of his articles were still published in the journal under a pseudonym, but he had more or less lost control of his co-creation. By 1943, it was clear to most that the Axis defeat was an inevitability. The Germans and the Italians had suffered severe and costly setbacks in Russia and North Africa, and it was clear that the Americans were preparing to join the fight in Africa. The Vichy regime had lost all credibility, and when the Germans invaded the unoccupied zone with the complete cooperation of the Pétain regime, all but their most extreme supporters began to find ways to resist. The Maquis, as a concept, had roots in the distant past of southern France. The etymological roots of the word are somewhat unclear, but it had come to refer to a vagabond living in the hills of the Massif Central. By 1943, many had fled to those hills and joined the numerous unconnected bands. 
In the cities, three or four separate groups had emerged engaged in resistance activities. They were Combat, Liberation, and Franc Trio. These groups published underground newspapers, helped allied pilots and Jews escape, counterfeited documents, planned operations, gathered intelligence, and engaged in sabotage. A smattering of veterans of the Spanish Civil War, not to mention the wars of 1870, World War I, and World War II, helped to kickstart these early efforts. Podcast Footnote There were also bands of communist partisans, though the early alliance of Stalin with Hitler and the subsequent roundups of known communists after the fall of France meant that these groups were hobbled early, caught off guard, and did not ever really cohere the way they did in some other countries. Some of these groups did come together and coalesce into the Franc Trio. They ended up having a leadership position within that organization, but communists were not the entirety of the membership of that group. Other communists became one of the many disconnected groups of Maquis roaming the countryside and pillaging at will. End podcast footnote. As Charles de Gaulle rose to become the face of the French resistance internationally, the disparate groups of resistors in France began to come together to try and coordinate their efforts. They were aided in this by the British SAS and the American OSS, but most of the hard work was done by those on the ground. The Maquis became the foot soldiers of the resistance, mostly coalescing around combat. Liberation was the intelligence arm, and Franck Trier engaged in planning and propaganda. But this division of labor took time to organize, since initially all three branches had executed all those functions independently, and it was important that no one ever had any kind of organizational chart. Operatives never really knew each other's names, only code words, and interactions were only ever a few at a time. People were only able to enter the resistance if someone could vouch for them. Spy hunting was a constant effort by both sides. Bloch made informal ties to the resistance early. Many of his colleagues at the University of Strasbourg in exile were part of a resistance ring, and he clearly went to meetings from an early date. He even published articles in the resistance journals. By 1943, it was clear to Bloch that the Axis would lose, but also that things were going to get much, much worse before they ended. Bloch's sons and nephews had already by this time fully joined the resistance, and his daughter had taken up the directorship of an isolated orphanage on the Spanish border. Bloch retired from the University of Montpellier as the French authorities began mass roundups of Jews. Still protected by his connections, Bloch made arrangements for the care of his remaining family and slipped off into the shadow world of the resistance in Lyon. We are running long now, so I must sadly shorten what is an extremely exciting part of the story. After a trial period in which he was only entrusted with menial tasks, the inevitable attrition of upper echelon members of the resistance meant that Bloch's talents were vital, and he was inducted into the higher ranks of the Franc Trieur. He was valued, as usual, for his coolness, his compassion for his comrades, his clear thinking, and his planning ability. Bloch worked in the vital resistance stronghold of Lyon, and under his direction his region was well-led and effective. As a member of the resistance, he lived in safe houses and under aliases, only rarely returning home, but he was able to indulge his nomadic impulses again. He visited Fevre several times in Paris and many other places, but in June 1944 his luck ran out. The story of Bloch's arrest and the aftermath is told very well by Carol Fink in her biography of Marc Bloch, and I really can't add or subtract a word, so I'm just going to give this as one long quote. Bloch's arrest was apparently the result of a series of apprehensions, divulgences, and perhaps betrayals of the MUR starting at the beginning of March in Paris and moving at once to Lyon. Mistel's investigation led to Chateau, who had been responsible for the distribution of the newspaper Combat, knew all the leaders, and appeared to have talked after his arrest on the 6th of March. On the next day, he was reportedly seen in a Gestapo vehicle indicating rendezvous sites. Drac, 
caught on the 7th of March, was accused by Lombard of giving further information under torture. Lombard subsequently admitted that he had revealed his uncle's address under torture. Another suspected person was Madame Jacques Tote. Released on 11th March, she was seen afterwards in a Gestapo car and was reportedly aware of and boastful about the activities of the distinguished elderly occupant of the sixth floor. Once the Gestapo had been able to puncture a few vulnerable points, Bach, with his distinctive combination of prudence and indifference to his personal safety, was easily caught. After his arrest, Bloch had been taken to the headquarters of the Gestapo on the Avenue Berthelot, the École de Saint-Militaire. Directed by Klaus Barbie, this establishment had become notorious for its grim array of torture, the scorching and icy baths, beatings and bludgeonings, as well as the executions in the basement. On the next day, after prolonged interrogation and torture, Bloch was brought to Montluc prison, where he was seen by his nephew, Lombard, in a, quote, very bad state of health. Following his second interrogation and torture, he spent four weeks in the infirmary, suffering from double bronchial pneumonia and serious contusions. Bloch told the Germans nothing except his real name, perhaps in the hope of outside intervention, perhaps out of pride, or a desire for better treatment. After his release from the infirmary, he was interrogated twice again, on the 22nd and 25th of May, and again refused to give information. While the Gestapo appeared to have lost interest in most of their captives, some of whom were released, a person of Bloch's stature, with his suspected ties to the CGE and other national officials, commanded special attention. Examined several times by the deputy governor of Montluc, he apparently failed to satisfy his captors. During his long agony, Bloch remained calm and stoic. Less than two kilometers from the heart of Lyon, he was incarcerated in a crowded, impenetrable, early 19th century military fortress, which was infamous for its poor food and hygiene. To, quote, pass the time, end quote, he resumed the role of the Sorbonne professor, teaching French history and explaining field patterns to a young resistant. He was especially alert to informants inside the cell. With little hope of release or escape, Bloch awaited his fate. As the Allied invasion drew nearer, the Germans, preparing their retreat, began disposing of their mounting number of captives. Some were deported to camps in the Third Reich, but starting in April and accelerating in early June, there were a series of nightly transports to isolated locations around Lyon, to avoid detection and retaliation by resistance forces, where groups of prisoners were shot. From the new arrivals, the inhabitants of Montluc learned almost at once of the 6th June Allied landings in Normandy. The long-awaited joyous tidings were transmitted from cell to cell by the coded knocks on the walls. Within a few days, by the middle of June, Marc Bloch was transferred to a new cell. On the night of 16th of June, at approximately 8 o'clock, 28 prisoners of Montluc were assembled from various cells and, handcuffed two by two, were placed in an open truck, escorted in front and at the rear by cars carrying German officers and sub-officers with aimed Tommy guns. They were driven to the Place Bellecourt, which, after the May bombings, had become the new main headquarters of the Gestapo. They waited in the van for about 20 minutes, during which time a drunken officer insulted them and bragged that London was about to be destroyed by the V-1 rocket. Having found its direction, the cortege made its way northward along the Saône, past Calure, Nouvelle-sur-Saône, and Travaux. A few kilometers north of Travaux, and just before the village of Saint-Didier-de-Formans, in a place called La Rousselle, the truck stopped next to a meadow which was surrounded by high bushes. The two vehicles were stationed perpendicular to the truck, 50 meters in front and behind. It was approximately 9 o'clock. The Germans ordered four prisoners to descend from the van. Their hands were untied, and they were led through the narrow entry into the meadow, from where, seconds later, came the sound of machine gun fire. Four more were called. One of them made a futile try to escape. 
Four by four, they were led into the meadow and shot by four uniformed soldiers at close range until all 28 had fallen. There were no cries of supplication. Some of the victims called out, Vive la France, adieu ma femme, etc. The executions took between 10 and 20 minutes. Then the Germans circulated amongst the bodies, delivering final shots to the heads and the napes of the neck. After destroying all pieces of identification, they hurriedly departed in the truck in two cars. The scene of the carnage was brutally chaotic, bodies resting on their backs, stomachs, or sides, and some curled up. Among them was a blind man holding his cane, another had an artificial right arm, and there was a corpse wearing the insignia of the Legion of Honor. Miraculously, there were two survivors, Jean Crespo and Charles Perrin, who were able to recount the incident. The next morning, the bodies were found by Marcel Pouvaret, the local schoolmaster and assistant to the mayor of Saint-Didier. The mayor called in the gendarme of Trevaux. Because none of the victims could be identified, the police summoned forensic authorities from Lyon, who proceeded to photograph, fingerprint, and gather scraps of evidence from the 26 corpses. Then, the bodies were placed in coffins and buried in Saint-Didier. Bloch's disappearance in March 1944 had naturally produced alarm. His closest colleague, Maurice, trusting Bloch's strength and composure, did not flee, and, learning of his agony, tried unsuccessfully to free him. After finding shelter for the two youngest children, Marc Bloch's wife and daughter came to Lyon to search for him. Already ill with an undiagnosed stomach cancer, Simone Bloch survived her husband by less than a month without recognizing his photograph. Bloch's brother-in-law, Arnold Hanf, who had been arrested at almost the same time in Limoges, was killed by the Germans in the mass shootings at Brantome on 26th March 1944 after digging his own grave. His wife, Jeanne, was deported and died at Auschwitz. Sometime after it was deserted in May 1944, the Bloch home in Faugerez was occupied and pillaged, presumably by communist partisans. The furniture remained, but many precious private belongings disappeared. Lucien Fevre, who had learned of Bloch's arrest from one of their colleagues, spread the word prudently in Paris. At first he hoped Bloch might have been deported to Germany, but Fevre was also one of the first to learn, through another reliable contact, about the shootings at Saint-Didier. Lyon was finally liberated on the 3rd of September 1944 by American, Free French, and Resistance forces. Soon afterwards, Fevre made a melancholy solo journey there to seek information about his missing friend. Two months later, in early November 1944, Bloch's death was officially established when his daughter, Alice, and his sister-in-law, Hélène Wiel, finally identified his personal effects. His spectacles, pieces of his jacket and tie, the three decorations he always wore, and the incontrovertible evidence of his fingerprints. From a France now almost entirely freed from German occupation came the tragic news of the slaying of a noble historian, teacher, soldier, and patriot. For his children, three of whom were still in arms, it was an even more terrible loss. In many ways, the importance of the life of Marc Bloch was not in his work itself, but in that of his students. Though undoubtedly a brilliant historian, whose productivity over 20 years remains impressive, he was not really universally recognized in his time outside of historical circles. It was in the conditions of France after the war that we find the initial importance of Bloch. Bloch's sons, after helping to liberate their country, did their best to assemble their father's papers. Ultimately, their wartime experiences led them into careers other than history, and so these papers were placed in the care of Lucien Fevre, their father's friend and collaborator. 
Fevre was understandably deeply upset by the murder of his friend of 20 years, and as the nation celebrated its liberation, tried to rebuild, and engaged in some very unhelpful infighting, Fevre began organizing the unpublished works of Bloch for publication. After the publication of a few poorly organized compilations of lecture notes, The Strange Defeat was released in 1949. It was not an immediate success, as the subject remained painful, but its readership grew and soon grew rapidly, and it became a sort of catharsis for its French readers. The work cemented the reputation of Bloch as a savant for those outside of academia, and for those in military circles it is still considered an important work of analysis. The historian's craft was never finished by Bloch, but the publication of the finished five chapters and the unfinished sixth in 1953 ensured that Bloch would become a unifying hero for the new France. With the complete discreditation of the right, all those who made up the body politic of the new French Republic could look to Bloch and see an ideal figure. Though many academics did indeed join the resistance, including a number of his students, Bloch had died fighting for his nation against fascism, where so many of his status had taken the opportunity to flee. The book showed him as a wit, committed to his ideals, and passionate about the importance of education in history. It doesn't hurt that it's actually a pretty good introduction to methodology, at least insofar as it's been completed. And in the eight pages of the unfinished sixth chapter, which ends mid-sentence, there's a poignant reminder of the loss his death was to humanity. After the war, the Annals was revived by Fevre yet again, now with the aid of many of his and Bloch's former students and collaborators, and the journal now regularly issued remembrances of its absent co-founder. Equally important, the new French state began to make the provision of high-quality education and social services a key part of its reason for being. And in this environment, history, so long an ignored and maligned part of the academy, was suddenly lavished with support. The old leaders of the historical establishment remained, but Fevre, who had long championed the cause of educational reform, along with his now sainted collaborator, was well-positioned to leapfrog over the backs of other, possibly more senior figures. Fevre helped to found the new historical establishment of France, and when he died, he passed it on to a designated heir, Fernand Braudel, who also lived for many, many years and continued to reinforce the legacy of Bloch and Fevre. As the French Academy was being lavished with support, it was well able to engage in the most exciting research, published the best work, and in general gained much international admiration and influence. It also became a pillar of the French state's claim to legitimacy, and this historical establishment was so wrapped up with Fevre and Bloch's memory that it came to be known as the Annals School. Philosophically, the school began to drift, gradually at first but quickly later, from the ideas and ideals espoused by Bloch and Fevre in their youth. In some ways, this was due to the complete adoption of their methodological ideas, coupled with the need to continue to identify themselves as unique in that kind of situation. There is also the issue of the inevitable drift of society over time. Women's history was never conceived of by Bloch or anyone else of his generation, but by the 70s it was a key topic of discussion. But there was also a drift back into what Bloch might have termed comfortable or lazy historical practices. Bloch himself had often emphasized le long durée, the long term, in his analysis of history. This focused on identifying themes in history and not getting bogged down in details. Under his spiritual grandchildren, the long durée became an obsession with impersonal historical structures, grand forces that carried people along. Bloch, a man who had fought and sacrificed for what he thought was right, said many times in his writings that he believed in the ability of an individual to affect the course of history, but this view was ignored, glossed over, or forgotten by his spiritual grandchildren. 
In their comfortable cohabitation with the centrist French state, liberal idealism became for these men an act of identity over passion, and many members of the Annales school used the idea of la longue durée to avoid coming to grips with new and uncomfortable ideas. This came into particular focus in the United States, where the spiritual descendants of Bloch and Fevre were called the structuralists because of their focus on these grand historical structures. This group of historians proved very hostile at first to studying women's history. Women were just part of the mass of humanity. There weren't enough records about them. There was no need to get caught up in such details. It was a distraction from la longue durée. Had Bloch seen it, he might have reminded these men that such arguments were once used by German historicists to avoid discussing the common poor in history. According to Carol Fink, the eclipse of the Annales School in France began with the election of the Socialist Party into government in the 1980s. To the public, this was the first far-left government since the war. Many in France looked with excitement to the party's leader, Mitterrand, for the revival and re-energizing of a republic that had begun to drift under the successors of de Gaulle. This socialist party was deeply identified with the French academic establishment. Unfortunately, the socialists proved unable or unwilling to make the radical changes that their far-left political stance would seem to indicate. The Annales School, so associated with what had become the center-left, shared in the popular disaffection with the socialists. In the U.S., the eclipse of the Annals School, or the Structuralist School, was tied to the civil upheaval of the 1960s and 70s, and, in particular, to the refusal of these purportedly liberal scholars to really engage with the history of women, minorities, homosexuals, and others outside the mainstream. This resistance, in the context of widespread social change, meant that they simply lost control of the narrative for those who were more in tune with the times. Unfortunately, no one has really arisen to replace the Annals School. Certainly, most U.S. scholars would describe themselves as post-structuralist, and French scholars would certainly not claim to be part of the Annals School unless they have actually been published in the journal. But there has been no group to emerge to present a clear vision with the kind of energy needed to replace this coherence. Instead, the U.S. is home to several competing threads of historical thought, which, due to the prominence of the United States in the world right now, have become reflected in academic institutions around the world, including France, though it should be said that European scholars do tend to stick to a more structuralist stance. There are those who argue that this is okay, that coherence and unity are simply tools used to silence dissent. Certainly any unity within an academic discipline needs to respond to change, and should not exist to the detriment of those who disagree. The stance of the structuralists against feminism was unbelievably short-sighted and self-serving by the men of that time and is a perfect example of unity gone wrong. The unwillingness of the spiritual heirs of Bloch, an Alsatian Jew, to come to grips with the histories of religious and ethnic minorities is, frankly, mind-boggling to me. But there is something to be said for the ideas of Bloch, the original ones. The post-structuralist schools, despite their grappling with relevant topics, have themselves begun to ossify, to delve deeper and deeper into arcane specializations, and have proven incapable of explaining the importance of, you know, knowing things, to the general public. Attempts to synthesize knowledge are left more and more to popular historians outside the academy, often journalists, and sometimes podcasters. And what has this gotten us? When I set out to write this episode, I knew the outlines of the story from previous research, and expected to tell a fun, if tragic, story about a likable historian whose work remains influential. Instead, reading Carol Fink's detailed yet highly readable biography of Bloch was a chilling glance into a mirror of current events. The story of the fall of France and her eventual embrace of Nazism features strongly the tale of the disconnection of the populace from a discredited academic community who are so comfortable in their positions that they do not stoop to explain their work in terms accessible to a person 
with a job. The ability of charlatans and intellectual mediocrities to rise to power in such an environment is, according to Bloch, directly tied to the failure of society to properly prepare its members to differentiate between truth and falsehood. As an assimilated Jew, working on evenings and weekends to try to explain something of our common past to others in the face of the rise of right-wing populism around the world, this reading has been somewhat infuriating. As a father and a husband in the process of tying himself to a 30-year mortgage, reading about Bloch's half-hearted struggles to escape has been somewhat terrifying. I don't labor under the illusion that Bloch would have liked my show. In fact, Bloch was notorious for being an extremely demanding and cutting editor, and I doubt my show would meet his standards. Still, I strive to attain some semblance of the methodological rigor that he described in the historian's craft, and to ultimately provide history that is useful to society. Useful how, I'm not always sure, but I know you're out there, and I hope that I can take that as some assurance that you find this useful. I hope that, at least occasionally, my show is something more than just something to listen to whilst doing dishes. In that hope, I'm going to leave you today with a final quote from the man himself, read by Jerry Landry of the excellent William Henry Harrison podcast. Thank you for listening. For a man to form a clear idea of the needs of society and to make an effort to spread his views widely is to introduce a grain of leaven into the general mentality. By so doing, he gives himself a chance to modify it to some small extent and consequently to bring some influence to bear upon the course of events that, in the last analysis, are dictated by human psychology. The real trouble with us professors was that we were absorbed in our day-to-day task. Most of us can say with some justice that we were good workmen. Is it equally true to say that we were good citizens? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. 
Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm-hmm. 